Welcome to the 100-Pounder Emphasis Workshop. My name is Cheryl. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater food addict and your moderator for this meeting. Please, Hi, everyone. I, too, am a 100-pounder. Uh, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. So before we get started, would everyone please check your cell phone or any electronic device to make sure it is on silence, please. We remind you that this session is being recorded. All speakers must sign our release form, and that's not only the speakers up here, but when we open it up for sharing as well. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. If there is press in the room, please do not take un any unauthorized pictures or identify, identify anyone using their full name. The opinions expressed here today are those of the individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. OA members are reminded when sharing to speak to your recovery in the program of Overeaters Anonymous only. The format, format of this session is as follows. We will have three speakers who will share for 20 minutes each, followed by three-minute open pitches until the end of this session. The topic for this session is 100-pound emphasis. The following is a reading from the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous, page 9. We of Overeaters Anonymous have found in the fellowship a way to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. After years of guilt over repeated failures to control our eating and our weight, we now have a solution that works. Our solution is a program of recovery, a program of 12 simple steps. By following these steps, thousands of compulsive overeaters have stopped eating compulsively. In OA, we have no program of diets and exercise, no scales, no magic pills. What we do have to offer is far greater than any of these things, a fellowship in which we find and share the healing power of love. Our common bonds are two, the disease of compulsive eating from which we have all suffered and the solution that we are all finding as we live by the principles embodied in these steps. At this time, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Dominic from San Francisco. Welcome. <laughs> My name is Dominic, I'm both Robert Eater. Can you hear me? <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> I'm kind of nervous for some reason. I got, and I'm usually not too nervous at a, like I'm pretty sure that of all the subjects I can speak about, it's being 100 pounds overweight and compulsive overeating. <laughs> I had to, in that, I'm an expert. <laughs> and uh, just like a, a lot of people. So um, my story it's nice to be at a hundred pounder because a lot of times when I speak at meetings, I, I there's a lot of different people with a lot of different stories than mine when they come to the meeting, and 
you know, the common thing, the common bond is like the compulsive overeating. You know what I mean? And whether you're 100 pounds or, or five, you know, they over, the overeating is the disease. But my focus has always been about the weight, you know, have been overweight. You know, I was an overweight kid. I grew up in Ireland. And when I, I was identifiably overweight in the sense that I was aware of it, <laughs> by the time I was eight, you know, eight years old, and it was a problem. And it was pointed out to me on more than one occasion by my family that it was a problem. And this, the message I got very early on was it's a problem or it's wrong or it's bad and it's your fault. And, like, that was the end of the instruction. <laughs> there was no, like, for the most part. At times there was maybe some attempt, but there wasn't really, like, it wasn't like someone was joining with me to solve this problem. They were, but it was, a, like, you have this problem, it's bad, it's wrong. And, you know, and all the usual things from shaming to yelling to <laughs> not so much encouragement, gentle encouragement. And um, the other thing is I also grew up in an alcoholic home. And, you know, when you look back, it, I was just one more problem on the list. You know what I mean? And I was, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't great. It was an alcoholic home and all the things that go along with that. But I, I don't know. And somewhere in the mix of it, I, I, became, I was a commercial reader. And who knows when it started? Maybe I was – I remember, like, it's, I just liked eating. And um, I, I – would do these things where I won't, I won't talk too much about the eating, but you know, I lived in this like basically all these farm around in the middle of all these farms that are like relatively close together. And I didn't, this wasn't like a conscious plan, but I would be at those different houses. Everybody ate at different times, and like I would eat at our house, and then I'd be at our neighbor's house when they ate, and I'd be, and like I would eat several times. And I say that because the thing for me is I was a young kid, like it wasn't conscious. You know, I wasn't like I schemed and did that, which there were plenty of times I schemed to eat and did things, but that was just what I did. It just seemed I'd just be there when it happened to be eating time. And uh, that, you know, the unconscious aspect of the eating for me is, is important, you know, because I think it's that's a real like sign that this is a disease. It's, it's in my thinking, that it's in my thinking. So then. Um, I, by the time I was 10, 11, 12, like I, I don't remember exactly, but I was on diets. I knew about diets. I heard about diets. I started diets. And I saw this lady on the TV, and she, was, she did this thing called the Beverly Hills Diet. You know? And like I'm living in the west coast of Ireland on a farm, and uh, <laughs> it's a long way from Beverly Hills. And you know, pineapple is hard to acquire, but I got it. You know? and, and I like to say that because... Willingness or a desire, a desire to, to not be overweight, I had it. I had it. But even at the young age like that, I also knew that I had, there was a kind of hopelessness to it, you know, in the sense that I didn't really feel like I could overcome this. And I'm a, you know, I, I don't know what the right word is, but like I'm an industrious little kid and I can get what I want and do what I want, but I didn't think I was going to overcome this come with overeating. And it's not that super relevant. It is relevant in the sense that once I became a, a, a teenager, you know, drink. I did. A, I did a lot of drinking. Everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people drink a lot. But I drank a lot, and I drank too much and was drunk. But I remember I'd fall down and be drunk and be like, "How fat I am!" and feel how bad I was and feel less than. And that was a common thinking. And a lot of shame. Like shame is a huge part of like for me being a 
you can't hide, you know, 100 pounds, once you get to be 100, you know, you're the biggest kid in the family, you're the biggest kid in the class, you're the biggest kid on the bus when you go on the school tour, you're the biggest kid in the, it's hurling team, which is a eclectic game they play in Ireland. <laughs> it's like field hockey, you're the biggest kid on that, and like, it's just you're aware of it all the time. You can't avoid it, and it does. It's not like a secret disease. There's no secrecy to it, and the, you know the judgment would come. And and also, you can, I wasn't able to do anything about it. So, um, and what my story with dieting, in the sense, like, if you take it from a percentages point of view, I'm an absolute failure at dieting, in the sense that. If you take all the time, I was thin for minutes before I came to come for eating. You know, like I literally would, get, I would do a diet, and they would work in the sense that I would lose the weight. You know, whether it be, and I've dieted off eighty pounds, hundred pounds, ten pounds, two pounds. You know, like I've had different diets for different periods, and they've as when I was on them, and when I stopped compulsive eating, I lost weight. But there was no transition plan. Like once I got to some weight, then there was a day when I wasn't on the diet. And it wasn't like a planned day, or it wasn't like I had, and just there was one day. And then the diet was, and this is all the, all the things about my compulsive reading, everything was going to occur in the future. Like someday in the future, this is going to change. I'm going to change from being like, I'm going to get back on the diet. I'm going to not do this. I'm going to do that or whatever. And like I tied it to every single event that wasn't right now, you know, like tomorrow, Monday, the winter solstice, summer solstice, which we just had, you know, like some, some, it didn't really matter why I attached it to because as long as it didn't, in, didn't interfere with what I was going to do today, you know, in the sense that I could put whatever I was going to put on my, today. And uh, where are we in the time? I, I, um, okay, thanks. And um, so I, and I just went on to that. And, you know, and then the other thing is every time I would lose a little bit of weight, I would gain back and I gained some bonus pounds and gain back. And, you know, my weight, you know, and there was always a new milestone. There was stone, you know, was, they were, everybody weighs themselves in stone, which are measures of 14 pounds. And, uh, you know, there's, I don't know, 10 stone, 15 stone, you know. And then, like, when I got to my top weight, I was... Uh, I don't know how many stone. I was 333 pounds. <laughs> and that wasn't my top, top weight, but that was my weight when I got here to, to Overages Anonymous. And my top weight that I'd weighed myself once was 352 pounds. And, of course, I immediately went on a diet. And then I lost 30 pounds and then gained back some of it and came to OA. <laughs> but um, so I've been, you know, I've been maintaining like 130-pound weight loss for a long time and in I've been in program for a bit over 20 years, but I've been abstinent for 20 years. You know, and that's my abstinence is three meals a day, nothing in between, no sugar. Plan the last bite before you take the first, which is a very subtle but important piece. <laughs> and uh, you know, there's, there's a whole other complexities to what I eat and I don't eat, but my basic abstinence has been the same throughout. And it's very my sponsor is always. Made it really important that I be clear, you know, like clarity is the most important thing. You know, where's the line and don't cross it. Like, that's that's really, and that's, and I also believe like people get what they need. You know what I mean? I didn't get what you needed when I came. I came what I, I got what I needed and I met the right people and stuff. So, my story I had moved after college, I moved over to Southern California. I got, did for an intense short but intense period I did a whole bunch of drinking and drugs and got in trouble with um, the 
uh, Orange County, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> I got, and then I got, and I got sent to. Um, I got sent to a diversion program, but I also, as part of that, I had to go to 12-step meetings. And they didn't care which ones I went to. And I went to, and I remember the well, first time I walked into it was an NA meeting. And um, I, I, the guy who spoke was a heroin addict, and I, I, I never did heroin. I did other drugs, but I didn't do heroin. But and he told his story, which was a long, big, long story with, like, endless rounds and endless things. And it was, it was very good. And I thought... The thought I had was, if this guy was talking about food, he would have told my story just now. I mean, without the jails and all the other stuff. But, like, the, the hopelessness and the, the pathetic and the, the endless cycles and the inability to stop no matter what the consequences were. And, uh, you know, pretty soon I found out about uh, Overeaters Anonymous. And I, I went to one meeting, and it was like a Wednesday evening in, uh, I forget the city... But um, you know, it was a tiny meeting. There was a few people. There was like six people there, and thanks. And four of us had come from a fast food restaurant, and <laughs> probably, you know, if and. But in that meeting, I heard about where the next meeting was. You know, they said on Saturday morning, opposite John Wayne Airport, there's a meeting in Hoff's Hut. And it's a men's meeting, and I, and you know, I could have over the next year, I didn't go. I didn't go to that meeting, but I never forgot where it was. Like, I, I, you know, it, it still burned in my memory exactly where that meeting was. And, you know, and in that period, I gained my top weight and I lost some weight and I was gaining back the weight. And then I started going to that meeting. And I literally would go to that meeting and I would, it was a breakfast meeting, and I would eat before, during, and after it, you know, and... That meeting was very open and accepting. You know, it's a, there was a, a lot of guys there, and there were a lot of diff- different stages of recovery. But they were like, if you have a desire to stop overeating, this is a place for you. And, you know, and they, they would hug you and stuff, which wasn't exactly anything I liked at <laughs> or wanted at that point. But I was pre-sedative, and some days I sat at the back with a cap on and, like, don't talk to me. Some days I sat, I moved a little bit further forward. But they were very welcoming, and they were, I just and the other thing I realized was I was very because I had been losing and gaining the weight i had um, I was very uncomfortable in my own skin everywhere, and I was comfortable in my own skin in that meeting, so it kept me coming back, you know what I mean for the six months, I just kept coming back, and I was like i 'm just one person in this room, one among many i wasn 't anything you know it wasn 't there was no snowflake, there was no unique i wasn 't there was people who were bigger than me or more weight, people who were less than me. There were different stages of recovery. So I felt very comfortable there. And then pretty soon I got a job in San Francisco, and I moved um, just to San Francisco. And it's, it's weird. It, it was kind of like a ge- geographic. You know, I'd moved a lot of places. And, of course, a geographic is a great thing because everything is going to be different when you go somewhere different. And, like, you know, even coming to Sacramento today, it's going to be different. And, and the thing is, I got there... And I just realized, he, I, I was there three days, and the guy at the corner store probably thinking, hey, it's 8 o'clock, that dude's going to come. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he's going to walk around the store and pick up a bunch of random stuff, and he might come back later. You know? And that was, it was all in crinkly paper and just whatever. And so I just realized, like, there's no end to this. And if I move to Timbuktu, I'll eat whatever they eat in Timbuktu, you know, and probably too much of it. So I called somebody on the phone just randomly on the OA, and he hadn't um, eaten between meals for six years. 
And like I had been tr going to OA and trying three meals a day and trying this, and I couldn't fathom the idea of, like it was an impossibility for me to speak, to not eat for uh, that long. So what I did was I, um, I asked, you know, I asked him what he did. And, you know, I, I say, like, I work my program out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, uh, this is my food plan. And I say that not in the sense of that I think that's right. That's, I came, I was out of ideas. I couldn't stop completely eating. And I didn't survey all the literature in OA and pick the pieces that I thought were appropriate and right for me. I didn't survey all the food plans. I got the person who, who I met, you know, which is kind of, and I asked them, what do I do to stop eating? And they said, and all they had is what their experience. They didn't have another, and it's not like there was a right or wrong. Everybody has different experiences, but that was the right thing for me. And it was, what was really important, and I think the spiritual aspect of it was just the willingness to do whatever he said. You know, like, do this. And I was like, you don't understand. You know, there was a lot of you don't understand what's going on. <laughs> and I said, you don't understand. Like, if I eat this, I'll gain weight and I'll do this. And, I mean, the thing that's become more and more true my own recovery and true working with others, our thinking about food is broken. It just doesn't work. I mean, I can't speak for everyone. I've got to speak for myself. And my, but my experience, it doesn't work. I don't have, and it's not rational. I'll make irrational decisions. And they're so subtle, and it's cunning, and the disease is, is my thinking primarily, and it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it'll rationalize all kinds of things. It gets me into a situation, but the end result is always the same. I'm just putting it in my mouth. You know what I mean? There's a reason to eat it right now. And so... I have no defense against that, or I didn't have a defense against that. And so that's what, when I started working a program, and he said, he t oh, thanks, thanks. He said, you need to have a, I need to get a spot. I need to have a higher power. He never said what the higher power was. It just needs to be a loving higher power. That was a requirement. And he said, I need to work the steps. And, you know, I, I just came, I was willing. I was willing. For some reason, I was willing. And I did, um, I... I just started to do what he said. And I remember, like, the steps The steps were, step one was easy, but I wrote it all out. And I remember I met him. It was a sunny day, and we met on uh, Aquatic Park in, you know, in, in San Francisco. And I read it to him. And it was just, like, to share my experience. You know, I, and I didn't talk too much about my food history, but it was just a lot of eating <laughs> and grazing. And I share with somebody else and, and have them kind of nod, but understandingly. Because I talked about my food to people in, like, Pays you pain ways, you know they they weigh you. You pay them, they weigh you. <laughs> and and uh, I talked, and like they always had that, they had the kind of baffled look in their face when you you know you exp you talked about your food honestly about my eating and how I behaved. They just kind of look at you, and they they either start with a why can't you just, or like it's not they don't understand it. But when I shared it with my sponsor, I got that sense, I got that nodding, like here's another person who knows, and they shared a little bit of their experience, and they knew. Like, they knew who, they understood what it was. And um, for me, the higher, the higher power, step two, wasn't difficult. I mean, I just wasn't. I never really got into a big debate about it. I just had higher power, and I asked that higher power for help. And it, that's kind of worked for me for a while, so I just keep it at that. That isn't this, everybody's experience, but, I mean, they knew that when they wrote this literature. They knew there were people who were going to double. They even have chapters about it, so... You know, every, obviously, it's everybody has a different experience there, but that wasn't a big deal. And step three, that was 
step three for me is my my willingness to just follow direction, even when I don't think that's the right direction. Like this is, you know, this is the food plan. Get the feedback. Do these amends. Do whatever. Just having that willingness. That was a lot of um, because I believe like the just the, the people who show up in my life in recovery or are kind. Of, it's kind of like a spiritual thing how they show up and who they are. You know, I I, I believe that. Then the fourth step. It was weird because I, I, I grew up in that alcoholic home. I was at home. I got the right book and the pens and everything. And uh, I remember I sat down and I wrote, I wrote down the word dad, like about the sixth person down. And I just like went, ooh, and I just closed the book. <laughs> and it wasn't – and again, it wasn't conscious. Like I just, I just had way other many other things to do except finish that fourth step. And, of course, things got hard on the program. I was abstinent, but it got harder and everything. And then I – Eventually, I just kept going to meetings, kept working, kept talking to my sponsor, and eventually, it was I was uncomfortable enough that I went back and did the you know wrote the next line in that fourth step and finished it. I shared it with the fifth step, and I had that experience like they described like afterwards, like something's different. I had that experience exactly when I finished my fifth step. I remember crossing the street. It, there's nothing. It wasn't too magical. Like it wasn't the temple. It was Polk Street in San Francisco. But, <laughs> but I remember walking across the street and I just felt something like it's different. And uh, and I was honest. And it was you know. And and the one thing that was the beginning of the alleviation of some of that shame. You know, because I carry shame. I could be ashamed about the cup I'm using, you know. <laughs> I have this tremendous ability to feel ashamed. I, I don't really understand why, it's such, but that's what it is. So then I went um, seven, six and seven in the beginning was the defects. I, I wasn't sure. I'm not sure really. I knew I had low self-esteem, but I certainly didn't understand it exactly. The eighth and ninth step, I understood exactly. <laughs> the thing I didn't understand was that I was doing them for me. You know, like I, I was thinking about like the mis- list of people I'd harmed and doing the amends. I didn't realize that the benefactor of it, it wasn't. And I remember I, got, I went to Ireland and I got a, a rental car and I drove around to all these little stores I'd stolen from and did a bunch of stuff like this. And I felt like, oh, thanks. I felt like um, the guy in the, in the big book, you know. But the thing is, what I realized is like, it was the beginning. It's like I was the, I was imprisoned in the in the prison of that shame and guilt and feeling guilty and and doing the amends was a way for me to kind of like my sponsor always told me that like esteemable the way to build self esteem is do esteemable acts and I think like doing the those the ninth step was tremendous you know and it was a tremendous but hard you know and of course like honestly driving around Ireland going to random stores is the easiest thing in the world <laughs> compared to some of the personal one-on-one ones with people that you have long-term relationships they're hard and the ongoing but i did those as well and then um the 10 and 11 i i can't i did a lot of 10 steps over the years and 11 you know there's so much about meditation now you could like i I dare say you could write a book on it, like you could you could fall over a book on it. But in the simplest sense, there's a chapter, there's a there's a pages in the big book that says on awakening and it outlines a process for meditation. That's that might be enough. You know what I mean? That might be enough. So then and then unless I'm out of time. The last thing I think is and one of the most enriching things of my whole uh of thing is I've always sponsored people in this program since I've been here and um it works perfectly. That doesn't mean all those people I sponsored, you know, stayed or left. It worked perfectly for me. I've been abstinent for 20 years. I haven't eaten, 
eaten between meals for 20 years. I've been in relatively normal weight for 20 years. So I can't, if sponsorship works perfectly. <laughs> so thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thank you, Dominique. All right. <clears throat> Pardon me. Our second speaker is Poonam from Novato. I'm Poonam. I'm a compulsive overeater. So I came into the program about 15 years ago, and um, I weighed 100 pounds more than I weigh now. Uh, my top weight was about 240. And uh, I came from a very feeling a lot of despair and feeling hopeless. I had tried all the commercial diets on the market and the commercial programs, Weight Watchers and whatever, Craig, they were all out there, and North Beach Diet and South Beach Diet. And no matter what I did, I always ended up putting on more weight afterwards. I'd been a compulsive overeater as far back in my childhood as I could remember. And um, at that point, I had triplet daughters as toddlers, and um, I was really afraid that I was going to die an early death. I had spent many years trying to have these children, uh, intensive fertility treatments, etc., and I was afraid I was not going to live long enough to see them become teenagers because I had high blood pressure, uh, my cholesterol was off the charts, my doctor was constantly uh, trying to urge me to go on Lipitor or something else. Um, I'd had raging diabetes when I was pregnant. I was pre-diabetic at that point, and I knew what raging diabetes felt like um, because when I was pregnant, I had run out of normal insulin levels, so they were talking about giving me some experimental insulin, pig insulin or something. So, so, But no matter what I tried, I couldn't lose the weight. Every time I went to see the doctor, the doctor would say, you have to lose the weight. You know, come back, lose the weight. And um, one day my doctor mentioned uh, something about bariatric surgery. And that lit a bulb in my brain because I felt I couldn't do it any other way. But in my mind, I thought I was small-boned. Uh, I was big-boned, and I needed to lose only about 85 pounds. And I read up on this, and it said that the insurance would pay if I had 100 pounds to lose. So I started plotting in my head of putting on 15 pounds because that I could do in a month, you know, easy. <laughs> and one day I saw an article in the Chronicle about Overeaters Anonymous. That's the only time ever I've seen a front page article on Overeaters Anonymous. And it mentioned OA as the last house on the block for compulsive overeaters. I had no doubt I was a compulsive overeater because I tried everything in the world. And so I went to this meeting. I looked up the meetings. I went to the meeting. It was a tiny meeting in a hospital. And for some reason, I was so emotionally overwrought, I was shaking. And when the meeting began, I was amazed. These people in this room knew what it was like for me on the inside. They were talking about the stuff that was happening to me on the inside, on a daily basis. I had never, ever met anybody who knew what it was like. It was such a powerful homecoming for me. 
I resolved to do whatever these people were doing. So I started going to meetings, and those days in the East Bay, there was, um, there was the tradition of talking about what the abstinence was for various people. So people would talk about the abstinences openly in the meeting, and so I started hearing people say, you know, three meals a day, nothing in between, abstinence from sugar or white flour. So I asked somebody what it meant to be abstinent, and um, one day I decided to give sugar a try because sugar was my absolutely biggest demon. Even though I'd had raging diabetes, I could not stop eating sugar. You know, it was a matter of shooting a little more insulin. So somehow it was noon, and I hadn't had sugar, and I couldn't believe it. And then, you know, each hour was just eking out, I remember. And then it was 2 o'clock, and 3, and 4, and oh my God, 4 p.m., and no sugar I had... So I waited somehow, and then it was dinner time, and somehow I put myself to bed. I could not believe that I'd gone through the whole day because gazillion times I had tried to get one day without sugar. It had never, ever, ever happened before. And I woke up the next morning, and I knew a miracle had happened for me. I had gone through a whole day without sugar, And I knew this day might not ever come back in my life again. And I didn't want to jinx it the next day. And so then another day went by, and three days, and a week, and a month. And I've been sugar-free ever since. So I became sugar-free, but I could do a lot of damage with all the fried stuff and all the other things in the world. I started doing three meals. But that didn't help me much either, and I was yo-yoing in the program. But I didn't know where else to go. I started feeling hopeless again. I had tried everything else out there. And I went to a meeting in San Francisco, Wednesday night meeting, and I heard somebody say that she didn't negotiate with food. Didn't negotiate with food? I negotiated with food every minute of the day. And I come from a culture where everything is negotiable. You know, you get a traffic ticket, and I kid you not, you negotiate with the policeman. And, you know, marriages are negotiated. Everything is negotiated. And uh, a few days later, I heard this woman say that she had a way of doing the 10th step, that food became low-grade static for her, and she felt the presence of a higher power palpably around her so she could reach out and touch her higher power. That's what I wanted. I wanted my food to be low-grade static so I didn't have to care about it, rather than a raging thing in my ears all day long. So after the meeting, I went up to her and I asked her, what are you doing? So she told me. And she said, I didn't have to be on 10th step to do the 10th step, because I was probably step one. So the next day, I wrote out step three prayer, word for word, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And I started writing, God, I'm afraid. I didn't realize I was such a fearful person. I was afraid of so many things, and the fears just came flooding up. And I wrote about them, and I wrote, God, I'm angry. 
God, I'm resentful. And anger for me is nothing but the tip of fears and the resentments. And they started coming out, and at the end of it, I closed with step seven prayer. My creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, all of me. And I wrote out the entire prayer, underlined it, and then I called somebody and gave this away. And giving away my innermost fears, stuff that tormented me, my anger, my resentment, it was like unzipping myself, my inners, being completely naked. And it unzipped me so powerfully, it made me so vulnerable, so humble, so teachable maybe, I don't know, that food became low-grade static. It was no problem for me to stay on my weighed and measured foods, which I started doing. I asked this person to be my sponsor. I started, and a few months later, she said she couldn't be my sponsor anymore, so I would call random people from the program list and gave it away. And she once said to me that she wouldn't mind, she didn't mind giving away her 10th step to a person walking on the street corner because it brought her relief, and that's how I felt. It brought me relief, so I would give it to anybody. And I realized I wasn't that special. I was just like anybody else, like anybody else. And um, it broke my isolation in a powerful way. I brought a lot of shame and isolation, just thick clouds of it. I had been molested as a child over long periods of time, And I felt different and tainted from other kids. And I had so much shame, I could never fathom anybody getting a chink into what was really like inside of me. But it broke the shame and let in the light. I decided to do a thorough fourth and fifth step as thorough and searching as I could make it. So I started doing the step work as honestly as I could because I tried it once before. But the recovery train had completely missed me because I had done the easier, the gentler way. So this time, I didn't want to miss that train again because I had seen people come into the program after me who would get something and would change before my very eyes and I would be flip-flopping through the meetings, one meeting after the other, and, and being pained by it, except I didn't even realize I was in pain. And so I did that, and to this day, I'm a 100-pounder, and I realize that what that number indicates is the seriousness of my disease. I'm not the 5-10-pounder who could perhaps eat intuitively, who could perhaps dabble in this or that, I may never get this day back again because I've been on the other side. I know what it's like because I've stolen food. I've stolen money to buy food. I've pulled food out of the garbage. I've eaten rotten food. I've raided the faculty refrigerator when other teachers went home. I was a teacher. I've done it all. And so I continue the practice of writing because it brings me such relief. I write pretty much every day. I underline the prayers. And when I write, it, it shows me exactly what's churning on the inside, what's eating on the inside, so I don't have to eat over it. 
I can accept it. I often ask for direction, God, what, what should I do about this? And I get a response. A lot of the time these days, the response is do nothing, surrender, take care of yourself. And that's a big one because I didn't do that before. Keep your food clean. Or it will say, talk to so-and-so, often my sponsor, or talk to such-and-such person. And I follow through with the steps. And because I've been doing this for a long time, maybe, or maybe my issues don't bite me as hard, or I'm just an excuse maker still, I don't give it away every day. I feel great when I give it away every day. But I see it as washing the inside chambers of my being. And when the wash water comes out slightly different color, if anything is slightly different, I have to make sure I call my sponsor and give it away. And my sponsor, the one who started me on the road to recovery, she said to me, she said, build strong abstinence with very clear boundaries, and the rest you will learn as you go along. So I decided to make abstinence number one. I built a food plan by doing the lists of red, yellow, and green foods by following the dignity of choice plan, three meals a day. I think I had a snack or two initially, but right now it's three meals a day with nothing in between. And what it means for me to be on my food plan is like being on autopilot. I know what I'm eating no matter where I am. I know what my portions are. Of course, at home, I have the luxury of measuring three meals a day. It's great. I don't have to be in my head. I don't have to procrastinate. I don't have to think. My sponsor said to me, make sure you have plenty of good food prepared and ready. So I always plan ahead, make sure the food is ready. It's in the refrigerator. If I'm going to work, pack it. And if I go somewhere, I bring my food with me. If I go to conventions, I often go to work conventions that last two, three days. I bring all my meals. I ask the hotel for a refrigerator if there's not one in the room because I learned they provide one if you claim it's medical issues, and it's serious medical issues for me. And uh, I bring it to weddings. I bring it anywhere where I'm not sure if it's potlucks. I always bring a vegetable dish, and I bring a big salad, because those I can't rely on. There's going to be plenty of carbs and other stuff there. And I have to prepare myself by writing. If it's a food occasion, some issues come up. Fears come up inside of me about social interactions, or personality interactions, I write on what I think, the, what I think might happen, my fears about that. I give it away. Once I see them, it's never as bad. And also, uh, I, I realize that what I enjoy the most about these events is social connection. And so I try to focus on my connection with people when I'm at social events rather than the food. And uh, that way I don't feel bad afterwards. However, I do stray. And if I stray, I have to write about it and share it with my sponsor. So I... Um, 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 I realize that I do things every single day the same way. If something is slightly off, 
it's my brain telling me that's, you know, that's okay. Um, for instance, I had a meeting where I had a couple bites of crackers thinking, oh, as soon as these people leave, I'm going to be having lunch. This will become part of my lunch. No, it doesn't become part of my lunch. My lunch starts when these people leave and I sit down um, in my house. So if anything like that happens, I have to be honest, honest between myself and the cup, honest with my sponsor, honest in my writing, and that nips it in the bud. Otherwise, as a 100-pounder, it's a long, steep fall for me. The other thing I have to do every day is I meditate. I meditate twice a day, and it's, my meditation time has grown quite a bit because I get so much out of it, and no matter what. Just as my abstinence is no matter what, any lengths, my meditation is no matter what, any lengths. I wake up first thing in the morning, I meditate in bed. I walk home, I meditate, and then eat my dinner. I meditate for an hour, twice a day. And when I meditate, it soothes me, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, everything. I get, instead of turning to the refrigerator, I turn to meditation. And I'm so grateful that that miracle has happened for me. When I meditate, it refreshes me, it soothes me. Things that are biting me when I meditate, I'm connected to the, to the expansive universe. And my problems that were biting me seem like you know small problems, small self problems. And I'm connected to joy, bursts of joy sometimes. It's the sunshine of the spirit. I get inner direction. The intuitive voice becomes loud. So I just have to do it. I have to do it. And um, I also try to get four me- three meetings a week because three to thrive and two to survive is absolutely true for me. And I realize that I have found a way of life that works for me. One day at a time, it works for me. A long time ago, I read some article in Time magazine that people who have lost 100 pounds or more are big losers, and mostly they get majority of the cases, they gain the weight back within the first five years. So I know that I'm that big loser, and a miracle has happened to me. But I get to keep it one day at a time. Repetition is the only form of permanence in my life, as program says. And I'm so grateful to the program that this has happened. Everything I feel good about myself today comes from the program. And I feel really good about myself. And I see that reflected in people around me. I I see that um, in my mother, who, who suddenly seems to admire my way of life rather than constantly criticizing me. I see that in the faces of my kids. And I, I feel great when I don't have to try every single thing in my wardrobe before I set out somewhere and feel miserable because nothing fits or I have to try clothes from one size to, to the tenth size. And the blessings are so immense, so immense, that I have to... Um, it's just it's just beyond my wildest dreams, but it's all one day at a time. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Poonam. All right, our third speaker is Lonnie from Seal Beach. I'm Lonnie and I'm a grateful compulsive overeater. And I'm a hundred pounder. Thank you so much for your shares. I really appreciate it listening to both of you. And I don't think I've heard either one of you before. I came to Overeaters Anonymous in January of 1986. Um, I was lovely in January of 1986. I was 340 pounds. I had great big hair, great big clothes, uh, men's shoes, uh, polyester pants properly rubbed right in between the thighs like they were supposed to. I was 5'6 at the time. I'm 5'4 now. I resent those two inches. And <laughs> I'm serious. And, um, and I was terrified. I was absolutely in fear. I'm a fearful person. I'm a fear-based person, I've come to find out. I can give you wonderful angry, but behind that is a lot of afraid stuff. And I just knew, remember I said this was January, so in December of 1985, the glamorous um, holiday season, I did what I always did. I cooked everything. I'm totally addicted to sugar, by the way. And I am addicted, as a 100-pounder especially, I am addicted to large meals. That is part of my addiction. So too much I'm addicted to, and sugar wipes me out. As an example, I was about maybe six, seven years old, and the measurement of ice cream for me was one pint because that's what my grandmother got. And if she got it, doggone it, I got it also. Um, did I have good reasons to eat that way? I really believe I did. Actually, for a long time, food saved me. It saved me from a family that was relatively indifferent to me. I was fed and I was clothed. I do not have any memories of being particularly loved. I was teased a lot. Um, and, and sometimes it was mean-spirited, and so I learned how to defend that. That's another lethal lesson in and of itself. Um, bought right into, though, the compulsive overeating as I was to progress. And for a long time, weight was not an issue for me. I was a very athletic girl, healthy, and I could hold my own. And um, my birthday is April 1st, and every now and then, I've been 75 times around the sun, so I recently celebrated 75 births, my 75th birthday. And, and recently, people would say, oh, your birthday was April 1st. Lonnie, did you blah, blah, blah? Never more than once, because payback was a bitch. Okay, and I might look like that, but no, 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 something really terrible would come out and happen. So at a young age, I was 18 and one month when I got married, and I, um, we, we went ahead. I had three kids, and that's when I think the weight really started to, I began to see it. It began to affect me. I'm sorry, I'm saying this badly. It wasn't the weight that I began to see and began to affect me. It was the way I was putting on the weight that began. I began to see and it started to affect me. I married into a very loving family. I think I married my husband to get his family. That's kind of like a joke. We used to look at each other and say, we married each other for our money, right? We were poor as church mice. Let me just be clear about that. But um, they, uh, uh, they're, they're a petite family. They're a small family. I am not petite, and I am not small. Um, so at 300, I wasn't 340 pounds then. But shortly thereafter, having my third child, I really started to put on the weight. It's something like just, um, 
I, I'm not even sure what it was. I only knew that I didn't get enough. No matter what happened, I didn't get enough. If it was enough there to serve everyone, I wanted more than my share. So I would eat in secret, and then I would eat. And, you know, it would be, wow, you're not hardly eating anything. Trust me, if somebody is picking up weight to the tune that they're going to top out at 340 pounds at 5 feet 6, somebody's eating something, damn it. Okay, something is coming through there. Falling through the cracks. No, nothing fell through. But I'm going to skip ahead kind of fast because I want to get closer to uh, the future time. Uh, I come to, I, when I came to OA, it was, like I said, it was January of 1986, and something was now very awry. I'm on my job. I've always been just an incredible employee, and I'm failing. Something is very wrong. I'm being written up. I'm being called in the office and talked to. Oh, by the way, let me explain how that looked. That was, well, real big hair, moo in a professional fabric, might I add. <laughs> Serious about that, too. Sandals. Um, my ankles in that time would swell about to the size of my calves. I was eating nonstop, and there's nothing I, want say, I won't say. No filter whatsoever. And I don't care if you're my manager and you have situational power over me. I'm going to get it said, and it's going to embarrass the hell out of you, and I really don't care because, you know, you should have said it in the first place. <laughs> and that's exactly how it was going. And I knew, I remembered coming home from a friend's house right before the Christmas break in 1985, driving the 405 freeway to come home, and I'm terrified. The terror is so strong I could hardly breathe. And I wasn't sure of what I was terrified because I shut everything down. So there, no self-examination. I could examine you to a T, but there was no self-examination that was going to happen for me. And yet I could see myself. How did I get there? I, I don't know. And I didn't do a lot of night eating. God forbid my family should see me do that. But from 5 o'clock in the morning when I started baking cakes until 7 o'clock in the evening when it eased up when we all collected back at, at our house, um, I, it was it was just nonstop, and it wasn't pretty, and I wasn't happy with it. One, I remember one morning the secretary made, I don't know, some some pie ice cream thing she was bringing in for everybody, and I ate it at about nine o'clock in the morning, and my hands shook so bad I had to put them down on the desk to stop the tremors, and I thought I think I'm getting diabetes, so I ate it again. So that was the frame of mind that I was in at, as, as, I, as we broke for that Christmas holiday. And yet I did everything I always did through the Christmas holiday, which was go to movies, read, and eat. But when I came back to work, uh, a loving friend sent me something out of the Overeaters Anonymous welcome packet at the time. Interestingly enough, about eight years prior to this, I responded to a Dear Abby slash Ann Landers column that showed up in the L.A. Times. I can't remember which one it was because they were interchangeable to me. But I, I saw it, and I mailed it in with a self-addressed stamped envelope, and I was interested. I read just that much about Overeaters Anonymous, and, and I was waiting, and, and I had the address. I had the envelope, the return envelope, to come back to me at the office, and it did. And it was the one morning I didn't collect the mail. Somebody else got it and brought it to me. And, of course, I, in the return address, I put Overeaters Anonymous on it because, you know, what did I know? But she saw it, 
and I was crushed. Now she knows I'm fat. See, now before she really didn't know, and now she's got this envelope. She knows I'm there. And I opened the envelope, and I think what was in it was the 12-stepper, LA Intergroup's 12-stepper with a big list of meetings. Okay, I can make a telephone call. So I waited, and I called one number, and and, um, I I was later to meet the man who recorded that message, but... I listened to the message. It was go to a church, and this is where you go, and this is where you park, and no way in heck was I going to do that. So I threw that away, and the truth was I had to eat for a long time still. So fast forward, I'm now back into that. Just January, roughly the 19th of 1986, and I get this piece of literature, and I meet a friend, and I go to a meeting. And I, I, I really like to say that that was my bottom. Dear God, May that be my bottom. May I never have to go any lower, no matter what, than I was at that point at that time. Not only was it unlovely, as I described earlier, as to what a 340-pound raging crazy woman looks like, but there was nothing on the inside. There was nothing there. I blamed everybody for everything. I owned nothing. I'm talking behavior here. And, but I went to that meeting. And I went to the local Chicken Delicious, and I ate a dinner that, you know, stained up the top of my moo. And I got to that meeting, and we were studying the AA's 12 and 12. OA had not yet written literature like that. And we were studying, and I said, aha, reading. I'm very good at reading, so I can do this reading part. And uh, that night, in fact, I bought the book. I still own that book with a, a lot of telephone numbers that are now dead still in it. And we read, and I, and, and I went around the table, but an interesting ha- thing happened that night. It wasn't the hook that got me either, but that night I said, my name is Lonnie, and I'm a compulsive overeater, because that's what everybody else said. And a thing went off in my head that said, there's a name for what I do. I am not by myself. I am not the only person in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner who is already plotting the next meal. The Thanksgiving meal is in front of me, and I'm already plotting the next meal. I am not the only person that does that. But I've got to be the worst-looking individual in this room. You know, it was about 12 people and a beautiful woman who was the secretary of the meeting, busiest-ass little meeting I've ever been to, but a beautiful woman. She later was to become, very closely later, she was to become my first sponsor, my my very best friend, and a sister, and she died last year. And that was very difficult for a lot of people. But at that time, she was young and kick-ass gorgeous. And I looked at her, and I thought, Shit, well, I don't want to call her, and I really don't want to tell her what I eat. Well, what I didn't know was she wanted me to call her. She really wanted me to come back to the meeting, and she didn't want to hear what I ate. Okay, good. Life is good. We can move on from this. <laughs> but that's all I got from that meeting. I, I didn't really care if I came back or not. And the truth was, I think if I'd owned a VCR at the time, I wouldn't have come back. But I didn't have a VCR, so, you know, okay, so I, uh, I went, or maybe I said that backwards. Anyway, I went the next week, but the next week a very interesting thing took place because I paid attention a little bit more. I'm still reading well, thank you. And, and at that meeting we read, we wrote, we shared a candlelight, and we had a speaker, and all of that happened in one and a half hours. Remember I said that was a busy little meeting. And the thing was that I stayed. And within a month later, her name was Corinne. Within a month later, she said, you know, there's a really interesting meeting in West Los Angeles, and it's a big meeting, Lonnie. It's a 100-pounder emphasis, I'll go with you. She was the best I'll go with you ever met. 
she would nip at your heels like a, I swear, like a sheepdog, just get right and just herd you. And she did it to me all the time. She'd just get you, and you'd, you'd, next thing you know, you'd be, I don't want to give coffee at this. I don't want to do service. You can do this. You can do this. I did many things with her elbow in my ribs. She became my first sponsor. I told her everything. She didn't know how to say, Lonnie, you look like you need to lose 100 pounds. She could have said that. My goal in life was, I had two goals. I needed to lose 150 pounds, and I wanted my breast to stick out farther than my stomach. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with either one of those goals. <laughs> well, okay. Mm, mm. Here's the hard, fast truth of that. Um, I'm down right now about 125, pushing 130 pounds. Holding, been holding all that time. I've been a little bit lower, been a little bit higher. In my 75th year, I have other challenges. I'm going to touch those in a minute. But anyway, she gets me to this 100-pounder meeting, the rowdiest, loudest meeting I'd ever been to. I was shamed to my polyester pants, socks, I'm telling you. And you spoke my language, and you were my people. And I came back, and I never left. I've never left that meeting. In Los Angeles, if anybody's ever looking for Lonnie, somebody points. Thursday night right over here. We've had to move a couple of times. Thursday night right over here at the church, and there I am. And I'm grateful for that because I've lived through lots of hurts, lots of fun, lots of pain. I've had the best childhood I've ever had in Overeaters Anonymous. I've had to do a lot of things, and, and I've never left the meetings, giving service, having a sponsor, uh, doing what I can. Um, and I'm still a fear-based person about a lot of things, which is going to bring me to what I want to talk about right now. A couple of weeks ago, I, about three weeks ago, I get my checkup, except for my weight number. My numbers are so good. I mean, I have great you know, blood sugar, all that stuff. It's just looking really great. But I got a sore knee. Knee's been really sore. Doctor says, hmm, I think I'll send you over to see the orthopedic doctor. Good, do that. I go. He throws the x-rays up and he says, hmm, this is severe. And he starts talking and I said, you have to stop talking. You lost me at severe. At the word severe, I stopped listening. So please stop talking and back up again. He says, you need to have knee replacement surgery. You are bone on bone. Um, and I went, oh, that's probably why it hurts so bad. And he said, I said, when should I have that surgery? He said, right now. Except for one important thing. I need you to give me 25 pounds. And I just kind of smiled, and I said, uh, would Tuesday be okay? <laughs> and he, he just looked at me, went right over his head. I'm at, I have Kaiser as my medical. Okay, so he doesn't have a great sense of humor, but I'm deadly serious. And um, I thought this was a Thursday. I go to my Thursday meeting, and I share the truth. And I call my sponsor the next day, Friday, and I tell her the truth. One of the blessings I've received in Overeaters Anonymous is I am food transparent, and I will tell you the truth. So... A few months ago, I became, uh, started eating whole food plant-based. And I did it for two reasons. Uh, I have autoimmune issues, and I, and, and I figured it would help weight, bring my weight down. And I still feel that way. Okay. I go to Kaiser's Weight Management. Oh, by the way, that orthopedic doctor threw my ass under the bus and sent me to Kaiser's Weight Management Program. I got a lovely letter that said, hello, Miss Gardet, you know, we need to see you, blah, blah, call that number. I did, I went, and here's my story. 
I get there, there's about 30 of us going for the weight management orientation. I get in, I take my seat, and believe me, our 100-pounder brothers and sisters are showing up. There's about 30 of us there, and I'm sitting in the room, and I'm trying not to judge, and I'm judging, and I'm looking, and I said, okay, so I'll have a seat. And they start the orientation, and, and trust me, it's nothing anybody doesn't know. It's going to be weigh and measure. It's going to be cut down on some quantity. Remember I said I began whole food plan? Okay, so I've there's not very much I'm willing to give up yet. I mean, still, however, I can definitely bring in some calories. At 75 years old, I don't exactly uh, have the metabolism that I had at 43 when I came in or at 25 like I'd love to have. So, But I know kind of what's coming, and this is where the humor in the situation for me takes over. I need the help. I'm willing to do the work. I need surgery. This cannot turn into a four-year project. I would like to have this done in a few short months in a healthy manner. I could, be, I could be unhealthy, but I don't do thing. I don't get on something to get off of it. Okay, I will release, and I've released lots of things, but I don't get on it to get off. Because as soon as I'm on, you know where the head goes. This is what I'm going to eat. With. No, 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 no. I don't do that anymore. I gave that up for Lent many, many seasons ago. So. So I'm watching, and I, the faces on the people in the room are fascinating to me because as the, realiz- the, the realization hits them, what they've got to give up, let go, I'm sitting there feeling a tat on the spug side. I already released that a long, long time ago. Overeaters Anonymous now holds it for me. If I ever need it, I can always ask for it back. Let's see how good that works. <laughs> and my blessing was... I'd already released some things. I learned how to release here. I had a friend tell me one time, oh, you went to Overeaters Anonymous and they taught you how to eat. No, darling, I already knew how to eat. I went to Overeaters Anonymous and they taught me how to stop. (laughs) No one ever taught me how to stop. I didn't even know there was a concept called stop. I am addicted to huge quantities. Or as a friend and I like to joke and say, we're quantity whores. But maybe that's for another story too. <laughs> and lastly, I want to say, my, my day begins with giving thanks. I wake up in the morning literally every day. Thank you and I accept and receive the gift. I don't struggle with my days too much or my food. I don't struggle I don't try to get it. If I could just get it, everything would be okay. I'm really, you know, maybe today I'll get it. No, it's already given. All I have to do is receive and accept it. And I make the motion. I receive it and I accept it. And what's my job from that point on? For me, my job from that point on is don't trash it. Value it. Don't throw it away. I believe in my heart it's given to everyone. I believe it was offered to me years and years ago when I struggled with all the weight gain. But I didn't know it. I didn't know. I always looked for the pixie dust, the magic pill, the unicorn would come traipsing through my backyard. Bottom line for me is I would love to eat anything I want to eat in any quantity I want at any time of the day or night. I just don't want to pay the price. The price is is terrible. I don't eat that way today, and yet I have a body that is going to pay the price for where it's been. It 
my body has, my, my structure has borne a burden that it wasn't built to carry for all the years that it carried. It is unrealistic of me to think anything else. And yet, when I think about what my future is holding in, in store for me, I see it almost as an adventure. And there's just a little bit of funny on a part of it. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show up. I'm going to do the, 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 at least I'm going to get the information that Kaiser has for me. I'm going to not practice contempt prior to investigation, nor am I going to try to be the smartest bunny in the room. What's my goal, Lonnie? I need to give a doctor 25 good pounds that I needed to give up anyway. Thank you. And, and, and I need to have knee replacement surgery. You guys will hear all about the rest later. Thank you so much for letting me share. Thank you, Lonnie. All right, the meeting is now open for three-minute pitches. Be sure to sign in here, and for those of you who'd like to come up, please do so now. We ask that you limit your share to three minutes and confine your share to your experience, strength, and hope on the topic discussed today. The, the session will end at 3.30. Who would like to get us started? Come on up. Why don't you go ahead and, and we'll, you can sign afterwards. We can sign afterwards because we're short on time. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to say my name's uh, Jonathan, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And, and the reason why I'm here is because these two women just told my stories. I, I got diabetes. I'm, I mean, out of control diabetes, and like the ladies were saying, I still eat sugar. I, don't, I can't stop doing it. And the other lady here, um, I, I just, I, I, I'm being forced to resign from California Department of Corrections because of my attitude and what she was saying. You told my story. You know, I was like, screw you. I work for the state. I, I'm in the union. I'm in the union. I'm in the union. You can't do anything to me. It took them 10 years, 11 years, but... Yeah, so that's all I like to say is thank you, all of you, for your stories. And um, I hope that my fiancé there gets both of your phone numbers and keeps in contact with you. <laughs> because I, I wish you were a man so, I could, so you could sponsor me. I wish you were a man. But it just, I mean, I don't know. That's all I got to say. Thank you. else would like to share? All right, while you're getting, I saw a hand, come on up. Come on up. And uh, while she's coming, I'll take a, a quick share. My name is Cheryl, recovering compulsive overeater food addict. Thank you all so much. I got so much out of that. I was taking so many notes. Uh, things that really spoke to me that I identified with was the shame uh, to the root of my being. And I think the overall thing I heard was just the importance of making the abstinence, you know, absolute priority that is a gift from God. And I'll probably start to cry. I flew up here uh, from L.A., and it was the very first time I have flown in probably 20 years that I didn't need a seatbelt extender. Thank you. And I, 
And I thought, how appropriate that I'm doing that, going to a program that gifted me with that. And I had an extra room on the side <laughs> and uh, didn't have to f- fret about who was going to sit next to me. I flew southwest, and you can't choose your seats. And I was so compulsive. Once upon a time, I researched all the different airplanes and the width of their seats. So I could choose the airline that literally had the widest seat. And I thank God that I'm not there today, thanks to OA. So thank you. Well, you're going to be able to hear me. I need to get some more height and less width. Um, Anyway, I'm Elizabeth. And I'm going to talk to you about what happens when you disrespect the 100-pound weight loss. Hi. Um, Yes, I have lost 100 pounds, actually more. But I'm going to make this very short. I can't give you a history because the history is extensive. I'm 74 years old. That's older than than dirt. So anyway, I... I was born in another country where I was a preemie, and I maintained that they over-incubated me. My father looked at me, and this was in Europe, and, you know, your status as a female is not very uh, good, in, especially in the country I was in. And he looked at me and said, well, I just hope she lives. It's a girl, but I just hope she lives. Well, I heard the message, and I, yes, I did. I suffer and survive, and I... I'm your basic immigrant. My family brought me here from Hungary. But anyway, I was fat all my life. Even though I was a preemie, I usually say they over-incubated me. They didn't have over-incubators at that time. Um, anyway, I, um, when I came here at age 14, I think I was about 156 pounds. When I graduated from a prestigious um, high school in San Francisco, Notre Dame de Victoire, where I was the charity kid, I was over 200 pounds. I was going to be a nun, and then, because after all, nobody wants a fat woman. Anyway, make a long story short, uh, my mother brought home my husband to me. He happened to be eight years older and Hungarian. Okay, one minute. All right, so uh, um, we got married. He was always 30 pounds underweight, and I was always fat. What we had in common was we all both loved sweets. Anyway, my life went on. I gained, um, I was up to almost 300 pounds, came down to 111. That was not enough because nothing is enough for me. And uh, so um, just recently, my husband has died. We were married 53 years I don't know how, I didn't know how to be a wife because he ate and I watched and gained the weight. And then, um, and I don't know how to be a widow because I now have gained 40 pounds. So you figure out from 300 to down to 111 less, and now I am 40 pounds heavier. I lost my weight through another 12 step program. I'm not here to um, badmouth any 12 step program. It was not this one, but I happened to choose to come back over here and then. I'm just going to leave it up to God so that because I don't want to go back where I was. Losing the 100 pounds was not as hard as it is for me to have lost 100, my husband, and try to not regain the 100 pounds. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Mary Composable Reader. I'm a 100-pounder. I uh, f- uh, have lost my 
top weight was 250. Right now I'm 116. Um, been in the room since 1989, two relapses. I just want to get a shout out to thank you to the speakers. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, on Sunday, I lost my abstinence. Yeah. After, well, that's what it is. But good news is I'm back. Um, this is progress, not perfection. With two relapses, I know what this disease can do. You can go on autopilot and gain that, me, I can gain that 100 pounds two months, three months, and not even know I'm doing it. So I'm reaching out to you saying this. I come, I, I shared in another meeting, I have a brother that was a heroin addict. I'm a heroin addict with food. I am, need it, it's like... Uh, if I have a feeling, I think that's that's the answer. It's not. It's not. So I just want to say I'm humble. I'm here. I'm glad you guys are here. And that's it. Thanks. Hugs more important than the signing. <laughs> okay. All right. That's all the time we have for sharing. Um, it's now time to close this session. Let's thank our speakers again. If you enjoyed this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the All-Star Media table to order copies of this session or any other session. All workshops and the main speaker events are being recorded and are available on CD or as an electronic download. Please join hands as we close with the third step prayer, and you'll find that on page 8 in your program.